Welcome to Two Pint PLC. My name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I just completed my fifth year teaching high school science. And my name is Michael Ralph, and I am a graduate of the You Can Teach program at the University of Kansas. Professional discussions should not be limited to business hours. Join our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today we are drinking 1554 from New Belgium. And we are discussing major problems in education. So why are we going to do this in the first place? All right, education. It sucks. It's terrible. We should destroy it and start over. Just burn it to the ground. Yep, absolutely. Uh, homeschooling, we should just all homeschool all of our children always. Or send them to private or parochial schools. Yep. Just as long as the government isn't involved. That is the right answer. Seems like a little bit of a straw man. Uh, so we're considering an article uh, by Jack Schneider, America's Not-So-Broken Education System. Uh, and he kind of set up some uh, some easily knockdownable premises for most of this argument. I don't know. There are certainly people who argue that we should burn the whole thing down. But I don't know that that's the conversation worth having. Uh, it is something that you hear a lot and uh, there are lots of things to be critical about public education but uh, by no means is that hyperbole the right way to look at a problem in fact hyperbole is uh, rarely the right way to look at anything fair statement so uh, so before we can analyze what's good and what's bad in our current education system that we might improve it uh, I think we gotta start by identifying what is the purpose of public education to begin with. Like, what what are we doing, and then we can figure out if we're doing it well. Uh, the rhetoric often includes a narrative that education is to serve a uh, a country's workforce, um, and that one of the critiques about our current education system is that it was established during a time where uh, it was supporting the workforce of the 1920s, but it hasn't actually changed to be updated. What do you think about that, Ralph? Well, I, d I think that there are some people who imagine that vocational training is what we do, but I, don't, I know that that's not my perspective in class, which is interesting because I, I come at this to train scientists, but I argue that citizens need to have a science proficiency now more than ever. So while I want to prepare citizenry to be prepared to engage with scientific ideas, I think that the beginning of that sentence, I want to prepare citizenry, is my actual thesis statement in my classroom. The idea that I'm preparing workers is not satisfying to me. I don't know that I would be uh, emotionally or philosophically uh, invested as I am if my job were to train people to be workers. That's not actually what I'm doing. It's not why I'm in a classroom. It's not why this is my second career that I quit my first one to pursue this. I didn't do that to create better workers. Um, the idea that the purpose of education is to help create a better workforce is, uh, I think it's low-hanging fruit. I think a lot of people gravitate toward that because it is a simple narrative, a simple story that makes sense, that's good enough, let's move on. But if that were the case, then our actual curriculum and what we do in education would look very, very different. Instead of having a social studies class or a science class, we would have classes that were tailored to job preparation. We would have 
uh, public servant class, and we would have um, uh, medical preparation class, and we would have legal preparation class, and we would have um, construction preparation classes. That's just not the model that we have. Well, I, I don't know that's entirely true. In in our common district, in which we worked for several years, there were exactly those programs. There's a public service sequence of courses, and there's a there's a bioscience sequence of courses. There are explicit programs with those names. So those things do exist. They exist, but they are not why we have public education. Let's look at the development of education into the public education that we have today. If we go back 500 years ago, 400 years ago, education was uh, particularly rare, especially if we think about the education that when we use the words education today, that was reserved for the wealthiest and the most um, influential and powerful of people and their children. Uh, and vocational training was the assumed inheritance of uh, laborers so if you are the child of a laborer you will become a laborer and if you are the child of an aristocrat you will have a classical education and be able to wield that uh, education in order to influence the world um, in the 1800s that began to change as we did start seeing schools that were loosely public education and that they were funded or organized locally with uh, taxation. Um, and then it wasn't until 1918 that it became a United States federal mandate that children go to elementary school. This much, must, much happen. But the education of those individuals were for all people were not the laborer vocational training that they would have had alternatively it was more like the classical training for the elite so now this access to information that is used to be uh, elite not for job preparation is now available to a wider growing group of people why did that change happen well i i think that you're discounting public education uh, that mandate was an important turning point, but even in your own narrative, the majority, there was education. If I'm inheriting a tannery, then I'm going to learn to be a tanner. And so the entirety of my education was vocational training. And again, if the aristocracy and the, the richest few are able to have a more liberal arts education in 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 the long, long ago, then I would say that the majority of education that was happening in the public was vocational training pre this mandate what was it 100 years ago what did you say yeah uh, uh, 1918 which means we are passing the 99th birthday of mandated public education cool we should have beers to celebrate that event also uh but uh, so i think the shift is when we when we when we made public education versus those private educational instances they were to increase the efficiency of that education and um and increase the the rate of vertical transfer of those skills uh, for our citizenry. And then it was identified, if we're transferring skills, there is a common set of, of, um, of skills, abilities, perspectives, and knowledge that our citizenry is going to benefit if everybody has those things. Once we have the mechanisms to uh, distribute information in a more uniform manner across uh, across townships and across communities and across uh, larger locales, then they identified here are some liberal arts things that everybody needs to have because it makes our country run better. Yeah, let's talk about that because makes our country run better is bigger than 
job training is bigger than support and economy makes our country run better is bigger um neil postman was an education philosopher and he died in the uh early 2000s but he wrote a book called the end of education uh, and that end was a dual purpose word it meant both Uh, the end of education as we know it, but also the purpose to education. And he suggested a few things as to why we actually do this. And two of them really resonated with me. One of them was this idea that unlike uh, a car where we can have an owner's manual and we can look it up and we can understand how to use the car and uh, get the greatest utility out of that car, uh, we are on this planet and it is a spaceship hurtling through the solar system, and we do not know the complexities of the interactions that occur on this planet. We are discovering them. And the more we know about that, the more effectively we can survive as a group on this planet. There are complex social interactions, complex scientific interactions, natural interactions, uh, things that we don't have agency over, but we can develop agency towards. And that requires more people contributing and cooperating. Uh, And the more educated they are, the better they're able to make contributions to that cooperation. I find that to be a resonant reason. We improve ourselves by helping each other through education. And then a second reason that he proposed is that uh, democracy is an amazing human idea. It is an amazing uh, way to govern and run and rule and, as, as you said earlier, make a country work. So... An informed citizenry, as you invoked earlier, uh, if citizens are truly going to uh, inherit or wield the power to govern or run themselves, then better educated citizens are going to be able to make better decisions, which would contribute to this this great uh, democratic experiment. So if, if we establish that our premise with public ed- education is to make better citizens... Do you accept that statement? Yeah, either globally or nationally. Yes, I accept that yeah, statement. Just make better citizens. Then how well are we doing that is then the question, which brings us back to the article, uh, because I think that there are some things that we do poorly in that in that in that mechanism. And the the opening of the article, uh, the the author makes reference to two people. He makes reference to Khan of Khan Academy and then uh, a reformer, uh, Campbell Brown. And while the reformer, I don't know Merritt's particular uh, response, that privatization conversation may be one that we have another day. Uh, uh, Saul Khan makes comments in the in the cited article that I don't think are consistent with the way they're, the way they're represented in this article. Uh, he says... Uh, he's quoted late in that article, um, we identify gaps and then we ignore them. He's, his general thesis is that lecture homework, lecture homework is broken, does not work. That is not a best practice. And I'm on board with those statements. I think that those things are true. So while perhaps not burn it down, I'm generally, I'm conceptually in agreement with the article that we should not tear everything asunder and start from scratch because revising a draft is better than writing a fresh first draft. I generally am in agreement with with uh, with Mr. Khan that our lecture homework system that is so common is not best practice and is something that we need to get away from as a profession. I agree, 
And uh, I believe that is reflected in the education research base as well. So the professional state is that practice is not ideal. Challenge yourself to do something else. Uh, and we need to consider that <clears throat> when we compare this profession, a public education teacher, with other professions, um, public education as we know it <clears throat> is 100 years old, maybe 200 if you give leniencies uh, before the mandate. Um, when you compare that to science, which is 500 years old, and natural philosophy, which is thousands of years old, or law, which is thousands of years old, or modern medicine, which is maybe 250 years old, depending on when you identify what modern means, um, we are a young profession, which means that we are kind of in our infancy regarding how do we really do this? We, we've got the purpose down. We're building better citizens. Well, what does that look like? It doesn't look like burning it down to the ground. It looks like, look at what we have. What is, what are, what does the research say about what is best practice? What do we change to approach that? Edit, revise, improve is how you improve anything. And so when you compare us to other professions that have been doing it longer, we don't look as polished but that's to be understood because we're a younger profession well and i think comparing us to other professions highlights one of the greatest difficulties in our profession in education and that's because our thesis statement is make better citizens and man that would be a not there yet mark for my students if they put that down as a scientific question better is not measurable better citizenry can mean so many different things to so many different people and our metrics for making better citizens are not very good. They're really hard to interpret. They're particularly hard to make assessment measures. So even in the article, we're talking about graduation rates, which are self-imposed, and so are not a very good indicator of how a system is working if you're working with system outputs and system-defined metrics. Uh, so finding a way to measure what is a better citizen is really hard versus a medical profession, somebody's dead, somebody's not dead, or a legal, a legal practice where you've got precedence and you've got cases won and cases lost. Our measures for how much better we've made a citizen are not very good. And that, that translates over to the research where trying to do uh, quality education research on the effects of an intervention is tough because finding a way to measure the effect of that intervention is really hard. Establishing a control condition and then a treatment condition, not particularly difficult. But measuring the differences between those conditions is particularly difficult. Another difficulty in making progress is that we're working towards a moving target. So in the medical profession, keep people alive longer is going to more or less always be an objective. We're never going to stop caring about keeping people alive longer. Uh, but the nature of moving forward in time, and so we need new skills tomorrow and new skills again a year from now, uh, makes our preparation, uh, what I did this year might, might be best practice. But it can also be true that next year it is not best practice. And not only that, but our research methodologies are changing. So there's, there's, a, there's an ongoing revolution in neuroscience and our ability to visualize what's going on in brains, which tells us lots of new things about how, uh, how thinking happens at a physiological level, which can inform how we, how we affect that thinking as instructors, which can make what we did today the best and also not the best tomorrow. And that moving target 
makes this profession really satisfying, frankly. It's one of my favorite things about doing what we do is that we are always forced to move forward. Even if I've got the answer today, there's a new answer tomorrow that's responsive to the newest research. Uh, and that's a level of complexity that's not present in very many professions. So how do teachers uh, make professional considerations? One, they got to set goals for those students, and they can be inspired for those goals in lots of ways. They can be personal. They can be uh, from professional organizations. They can be influenced by district goals, building goals, administrator goals, department goals. You have goals for your students. And then you need to assess students' development toward those goals. Uh, for instance, uh, some goals for me, I want my students to have a robust understanding of science concepts. I want students to be effective communicators. Uh, I want students to make choices to enhance their physical and emotional health. That means in the classroom, if, I ha if I'm making a decision, um, if I'm considering an action, I wanna see progress toward those goals in my students. So how do I know what actions do I need to take? Because I could just make stuff up. I could just do whatever I want in my classroom and say that it's helping me make my, my goals. Well, and I think there's an important distinction to make here because this is one that, uh, that we've considered with word choice recently is there are plenty of teachers who want lots of things by their own statements. But if I say that I want my students to read more but then I monopolize their time to do other things and then I'm unhappy when they don't read more, I don't actually want that thing. That's not I that wasn't a goal for me. I can say that, but we state our priorities to our students with our time. That's where we say this matters to me. My time and my energy is spent here, so it matters to me. So your your want to's are different from your like to's. I would like my students to read more, but if I'm not spending time and energy to promote and incentivize and consider and provide feedback on that thing, then I would like it, but I don't want it. So I would argue that want to, that a goal is something that is defined by your time allocations. And your like to's are things that you would like to have true, but are not represented in your time allocations. And the distinction is important. Uh, I agree that your priorities are spoken by the time investment, um, but I don't necessarily agree that uh, priorities and goals are interchangeable words. I think it is okay to have a goal that you are not currently making progress toward, and that's in fact an important part of teacher reflection. Uh, for instance, I have a goal that students have a robust understanding of the nature of science and how it is done, but I do not provide enough concrete experiences in my classroom right now to actually make progress meaningfully toward that goal. It is a goal. It is has not been a priority, and I want to develop it, so I need to shift it to become a priority. So um, I think it is okay to have goals. And even if those goals are currently on the back burner, these are professional career goals. Well, because there are priorities. There are priorities, but not every priority is a top priority. The not Almost all of them are not a top priority. So that, that's all fine. That's all fine and appropriate. Yeah, I think it is okay for a professional to say, this is a goal. It is not a priority currently. I will keep it in my back. It's a priority, goals. but it's not the top priority. The distinction is meaningful because we make choices with our time every day. We make choices with our time. When I'm sitting in when I'm sitting in my room at 3:15 and I've got a student who is casually working on a lab and he's making progress, but I have 
seven other things I need to be doing, six of which are not in this classroom right now. I have to make a choice. Do I stay here and do I allow him to continue working? Or do I tell him to leave so I can go make progress on something else? I have multiple priorities and I make no apologies for whichever one I choose because they're both priorities. But whichever one is not the one on which I'm choosing to act in this moment. So I think that I think that you can have multiple priorities. You don't have to be making progress on them right now. But all of that is distinct from I I would like my students to have higher ACT scores. I am doing nothing to increase their ACT scores. So it is not a priority. It's not on the list. So that is great because now we're at the question. I have a like. I I want this like to become a goal. I would like how how do I do that? How do I start prioritizing this like to make it something that can improve in students? And we are not entirely helpless in this. There is uh, an education research base. There are foundational things that are uh, effective in classrooms, and we can explore what's not in that research base. Um, and we should, uh, but there are. You know, if I want to figure out how to how to improve ACT scores, I need to read education research about ACT scores. And then I need to try to change what I do in the classroom in order to influence students so that the students are engaged in the behaviors that it, it improve ACT scores. And then I need to provide, you know, using relying my education psychology to encourage them and support them as they do those behaviors so that we can lead to that outcome, which was my initial goal. So we're making lots of negative statements here. Uh, so let's move to, it is much harder to say something we should do than something we shouldn't do. So if, we, if we're going to be doing a podcast about education stuff, we're not going to spend all of our time talking about shouldn'ts. We're going to spend our time talking about shoulds, considering things that ought to happen. Not necessarily doing them, but considering them. So what was your priority this past year? What was, what was, what was your goal? I'll tell you mine first. My goal was engineering because I was compelled last summer by some meetings that I was in, some of them with retired engineers, and they were talking about the ways that it fits into uh, other other disciplines and other content areas, and I believed that I could grow that in my own students. And so that was my priority this year, was to more authentically represent and train them in uh, formalized expert engineering practices. It was true in my biotech, it was true in my honors biology, it was true in AP Bio, all of them. We did those things in ways that hadn't been true before. I had plenty of other priorities, but that was the one that I was explicitly spending time and energy improving. What was yours? Um, one of my personal goals for my students is a wellness goal, uh, it, helping them uh, improve their emotional and physical health. And so anytime in a classroom students had questions regarding those two things, I fostered a space where they could discuss it. In fact, I got an email very recently, we're in the middle of the summer, and I got an email from a parent who wrote me and said that my um, concern for my students' health and well-being was... Uh, an amazingly positive influence during this last semester because she had to miss a lot of school for her health. And my uh, flexibility and my giving her uh, a place where understanding that that was important, that dealing that was important, uh, helped her deal with the stress of missing school. And so uh, that was something that I was very conscious of during the course of this particular school year in ways that I wasn't in prior school years. I think it, for me, it is really important to maintain a working teacher persona with my students that 
when I'm in the classroom, the most important thing is their uh, cognitive and uh, wellness needs. That is so important to me to maintain that persona, that all other things are secondary. All other things are secondary to their safety and cognitive needs, their, their wellness and cognitive needs. Uh, toward that end, I have made decisions about my life to limit my online persona. I, I am, I am nearly a clean, nearly a clean internet individual. That is, there's very little available for me uh, out there, uh, and so when students uh, attempt to uh, engage me, I really gain a lot of information about myself. Uh, we share we share a lot of opinions about uh, how we should project ourselves in the classroom. And while I'm uh, my persona at school, man, there are a lot of students this year who wouldn't believe that I wore a tie fifty percent of days my first year of teaching because I looked young. Uh, I was young. I mean, I was young when I started. I was right out of college. I was a teacher. Uh, I got kicked out of the copy room at Christmas my first year because they believed I was a student. Students were not allowed in the copy room. I had to show my ID to have authority to collect my copies. Uh, and so I worked hard to establish that air of, of adulthood because I was so proximal to student age. But as I got older and more comfortable, I have this casual attitude with my students. But it's casual, but it it is very pragmatic because I struggle with uh, with uh, with that social dynamic um, and knowing where I would want that to be, and so I just choose to make it not a thing. Uh, I attend zero grad parties. Uh, I if I'm going to go do student activities, it's going to be uh, a main stage play or an athletic event somewhere where I cannot have social interactions, but I can show support. Uh, and there was one instance in particular this year where there was a student with whom I developed a relationship, uh, and uh, he he wanted to have some of that personal interaction, and I was really having a hard time because I recognized that there was value in providing that uh, providing that for him. It, provided a safe atmosphere, uh, some support that I wasn't sure that he was getting elsewhere. And I really wanted to be that for him, uh, but didn't know how to reconcile that with my own priorities uh, as a professional. And so uh, really just became somebody to listen while still trying to maintain um, that, that distance as an adult in the classroom. Uh, because I'm, I'm fine with hanging out with students once they've graduated and they're adults and they're people in the world, and I'm fine with that. Uh, but in that situation, uh, I want to I want to give him my belt because he needs a belt and he's comfortable asking me for one. And I want to let him talk to me about his relationship problems. And I can be silent. I can do that. And so I was just quiet and let him talk, uh, but was not comfortable. Wasn't comfortable providing the same level of investment in storytelling in those situations and I don't I have no earthly idea how well I navigated that situation I just remember that I was uncomfortable and that I believed that that was valuable for him and for his well-being and for his development in that moment and so I just I decided to try something and I so what I'm telling you Woodruff is I'm proud of you for trying something <laughs> and I have no idea whether it's good or bad that's what I'm telling you Now, we do other stuff. One of the things we're going to do on every show is talk about education topics. While we're both biology teachers, 
There are lots of education ideas out there. I'm certified in history. That's a thing that I can do. Uh, I know that you're talk, you're considering doing other certifications yourself, but we're going to talk about things that matter to educators uh, specifically. But since we're both biologists, we're going to start with a biology topic. So uh, there is an article, Teaching Genetics Prior to Evolution Improves Evolution Understanding but Not Acceptance. Uh, it is peer-reviewed literature. It's from uh, PILOS Biology. Uh, what's the what's the short version of what the article says? Um, the article uh, summarizes. Well, actually, it doesn't summarize. It's quite detailed. Uh, <laughs> describes a uh, study done in the United Kingdom, primarily in in South. Uh, southern England and southern Wales, where involving at least 1,700 students, if, if my numbers are correct, uh, where they uh, were able to influence teachers uh, to either teach evolution before genetics or teach genetics before evolution. So they have a wide sample size, and they were able to uh, have teachers uh, sign on the dotted line and agree to do these these certain ways. And then they did three different assessments of students' understanding of those topics and acceptance of those topics, specifically acceptance of evolution. They did an assessment at the beginning before the treatment, they did an assessment after both of them were taught, and they did an assessment uh, three to six months later to see what are students' attitudes and understandings of these topics before, right after, and then lingering after their experience. So what they found was teaching genetics before evolution leads to a greater uh, amount of understanding, but not necessarily a greater amount of acceptance. And so what that suggests is that the, the two topics are directly related. I think that's consistent with how uh, you teach it in your classroom and with how I taught it in my classroom. Uh, and it, what it boils down to is a fundamental definition of what evolution is and where it comes from, which suggests that it's all um, they, they are highly interrelated schemas, is what I would argue. Uh, they definitely are interrelated. And I have an undergraduate degree in genetics. So for me, genetics is the foundation from which uh, evolution blossoms. I find it crazy that there were people that uh, tried to describe evolution before genetics because clearly genetics is a key component of evolution. And uh, I just live in that space and I love that space. What's a, and what's interesting is I know a number of people who teach evolution first because of the argument that uh, evolution is the lens through which we view all of biology. And so this has some authentic implications for curricular sequencing. And I think that those implications go beyond just the biology discipline. So why is it that genetics would contribute to evolution understanding? So I think that that generalizes to other uh, disciplines because this is a concrete example of how establishing understanding in a, in a local schema network can contribute to and scaffold students toward a more robust understanding of a related topic that includes and interconnects with that schema. For instance, in a social studies course, if we're going to talk about the Great Depression and all of the things that happened during the Great Depression, Building students toward an understanding of a run on the market or a run on banks 
or economic uh, response to social situations would help them understand this particular instance and the social implications of that instance. So I think that ultimately at its core, what it's demonstrating is the nested state of some of the sub-disciplines that we, myself included, too often considered to be separate silos. That the disciplines that we teach are interconnected and those interconnections can inform our curricular construction. Another example of that same thing, again in English, um, Shakespeare is a highly celebrated author um, and that is because he was brilliant in how he told stories. Uh, many of the, he, he did not strictly write in straight prose, he wrote often in a restricted poetry form to tell his stories, whether it was uh, a play or otherwise. So he told a story in poetry, which means if you are going to have a deep, rich understanding of the linguistic mastery of Shakespeare, you have to enter into that study with a familiarity with poetry. And now for something completely different. Okay, so each episode, we're going to have at least one conversation about a non-answerable just because we like to argue and we're going to do it. Uh, today's, today's question, you can teach only one class to all students in the world. So if you had to distill and prune all of public education for all citizens at all ages, from the time you are three until the time you get a job, the only thing you are training in is this one thing, what would it be? And the issue is not what topic would it be, because I want to argue biology or at least science. Uh, the question is, is it a science or is it an art? Well, let's start with defining science, because that is a big dang deal in my profession as a science teacher. It is a big deal. Uh, science is a philosophy. It is a practice. Uh, it's, a, it's a human discipline. It is a human cultural discipline, which makes it a philosophy. It's a human cultural discipline that is attempting to answer the question, how does uh, the universe work? Uh, so that's science. I think that it's distinct from art, and this is totally my definition, uh, but when I think of art, I think of something that is that is emergent. So we have this collective idea or philosophy. Uh, we have a particular set of emotions and techniques. And out of those, we put them together and we synthesize and we make something new. The nature of an art is to make something new, uh, whether it be a creation or a, a technique or a... Um, a thought to elicit an emotion, but it's something that we make, and then that thing is incorporated into the rest of the uh, the practicers' um, knowledge base, and is then used to synthesize something new again. And so, I would define that a science is in, is intrinsically about describing something that is external. Versus an art is intrinsically about synthesizing something that is internal to create something new. So I'm describing something that is outside of me in an accurate way to produce predictions. Versus I am creating, I'm taking in and creating something new and then recontributing that something new. How do you feel about those two definitions? Uh, I had never considered art that way. So I feel, uh, I feel improved by hearing that, dis that definition. Thank you. 
Uh, I pick science not because art is without merit. I art is is really really valuable. Uh, but I would argue that if art is about taking in and resynthesizing and creating something new, that art is limited by the things that can be taken in. Because I, if I only know th- a very few things, then my opportunities for synthesis are really limited. Versus if I have an opportunity to engage with the world around me, the universe is infinite with or without me, probably. And so I, my, my opportunities for description and prediction are only limited by my industriousness and my ingenuity in making measurements and observations and then explaining those things. And so because... A science's uh, value, and I would argue ultimately its beauty, is not limited by my own mortal form, that that's something that we want to confer to the rest of society, so society can march forward independent of the shackles of humanity. Science is a necessary consequence of art, so you've got to teach art. It's got to be art. Uh, We have historically had the need to express ourselves. And we are satisfied when we reach higher levels of expression. Expression is agency. Art is agency. We Communication is a tool that came out of the need for expression. So that tool was developed scientifically in order to support the intrinsic need to express. Art results in science. Art is the human condition, that need to express what is external externally, our desire to improve the resolution of that expression forces us to consider technique, forces us to consider agency, prediction, reality. I didn't like any of that. So what about the beer? I've been drinking this whole time. Yeah, 1554. Uh, this is a new Belgian brew. Uh, it's a black lager, and it is one of my preferences. What I like about 1554 is that it is so clean. None of the tastes are overpowering. Uh, and it's kind of a... For me, it's on the lighter side of my preferences. I don't really like many beers that are lighter than this one or more hoppier than this one. So it kind of sets a boundary for me. Uh, I... Uh, I like I like fifteen fifteen four. Yeah, it's a it's a lager, so it's it's not a stout, even though it is a very dark in color. It drinks like a much uh, a much lighter beer, which is nice. Even though you and I both really enjoy stouts, uh, this one is nice because uh, a stout. You know, I can't drink I can't drink very many of most stouts uh, in any safe or responsible manner. But a 1554 is better than a typical yellow beer. It's better than the most boring or the most, um, the most, uh, industrialized beers. Uh, but it's, uh, it's got enough character to be satisfying and enjoyable while still being drinkable. Uh, 1554. To 1554. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Discuss research and struggle well.